Well, good morning, North Boulevard. Isn't it good to be warm in a cold place outside? Well, I'm, I'm both humbled and very excited about getting the opportunity to bring the message today. Uh, my name is Steve Flatt, and as I said, I'm a member here at North Boulevard Review. For the past 10 plus years, Patsy and I have been privileged to be part of this church family. And the blessings that we've encountered because of that, I can't even begin to, to number. It's also a great honor to continue as the chair of the New Day Vision Giving Campaign, an incredible initiative to help spur on disciple-making here, near, and far, and to literally grow the citizenry of the kingdom of God, I, I honestly believe way, way beyond our imagination. Now, I know most of you were here two years ago when the campaign was announced and the goals were set and all kind of educational material was presented and enthusiasm was growing and energy was building and some commitments and gifts had been made and then boom. Eight days prior to Commitment Sunday, everything came to a grinding halt. You know, I've preached for years that God's timing is always perfect, that He's never early, He's never late. Sometimes we just don't see it. I will confess to you, two years ago, I was asking God about that. It was like, God, what do you have in mind here? But you know what? As, as I look back over two years, He's allowed this church to continue to grow. He's expanded both the size and the scope of the vision. He's allowed us to take one key component of that vision, the abstract of planting churches through the global south. We've taken it from an abstract to over 500 churches that have actually been planted and adding one more a day. So now, it's like we see so much farther and better than we even could have two years ago. So I, I am thrilled North Boulevard's leadership is calling us to finish what we started. Accomplishing the goals that are outlined in this campaign are more needed, more urgent, more important than they've ever been before. I'm so very excited about seeing God's kingdom spread here, near, and far. But what I want to talk to you about today is something I'm equally excited about. I'm thrilled about the goals. I'm thrilled about seeing the results of the campaign. But what I'm just as excited about is what this opportunity to participate in the New Day Giving campaign can mean to me. What it can mean to you, what it can mean to each and every one of us as God calls us to embark upon this adventure of faith by stretching, maybe even getting us out of our comfort zones and making a sacrificial commitment to God's work. Now, to focus on this opportunity presented by the New Day campaign, David is leading us through one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. It's a who's who of, of, of people and individuals who stepped out in faith, and God used them in extraordinary ways. Well, I certainly don't want to get in David's way with the series, and I don't want to be redundant, really, with anything he's covered to this point or what he's going to cover later in the series. But when asked to fill the pulpit today, one of the things that kept gnawing at my soul was, I'd like to take a look with you at that great chapter from a 30,000-foot view to see what are the great principles of faith 
that you and I are called to live by that are embodied by that wonderful, wonderful cast of individuals. So today I want to look with you at four or five principles of faith. But, but before we look at the principles, let's be reminded what faith is. In my NIV version of the Bible, this is the first verse of Hebrews 11, and it's as good a definition of faith as I think you'll ever see. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. Now, I've highlighted those two words, sure and certain. They're not very ambiguous, are they? I I mean, faith is something that you really put your weight on. And whenever I read that verse, I think about a parallel verse that Paul penned in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we live by faith and not by sight. Now, I suspect a good number of you in this audience today, you have seen, read, and heard those two verses at least a thousand times. Some of you my age, it may be closer to five or ten thousand times. But I want you to stare at them again on the screen right now for just a few moments. I I want to let them sink in. Because I'm not sure most of us really understand how challenging these two statements are. Because the truth of the matter is I live most of my life by sight. That's not even true. I live virtually all of my life by sight. I woke up this morning and those eyelids popped open and everything I've done since is by sight. I walked in the bathroom, I brushed my teeth, I washed my face, I shaved, I showered, I got dressed. I went in and made the coffee, I read my Bible, I read the Bible, I did all that by sight. Every bit of it, I got in the car and drove here, I'm standing here looking at you by sight. That's just the way we roll. In this temporal world, we're getting constant input and we're constantly relying on our senses and especially sight. We came out of the womb that way, by the way. And it's God himself who gave us these blessings of senses. And frankly, we need them to survive and thrive in this world. So what on earth does it mean to live by faith and not by sight? What does it mean that faith is being sure of what we cannot see. Well, here's what it means, and you got to get this. When it comes to the really important things in life, when it comes to eternal things, when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to the things that are going to determine the direction and the destiny of my life, That's when my decisions and when my commitments cannot be made by empirical evidence. In fact, a lot of times they'll have to be made contrary to empirical evidence. Those decisions and commitments have to be made by being sure of a God I cannot see and being certain of the outcomes of promises that he's made to me. And by the way, I can't see those outcomes either, at least not at the time when I'm putting my weight on the promise. Those outcomes come later. Sometimes they come much, much later. Faith is being sure in a God I cannot see and certain in an invisible promise. That's what God wants. 
And oh, if you want to know how important that is, I think David covered this last week. Look what Hebrews eleven six 6 says from our great chapter. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not much ambiguity, ambiguity in that either. <laughs> he didn't say without faith, it's kind of hard to please God. Without faith, it's really tough to please God. No, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must realize that he believed that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So with that, I want to go into faith principle number one. Now, this is a paraphrase of Hebrews 11.1. 1. You know what faith is? Faith is trusting in God's promises. That, by the way, is what everybody in Hebrews 11 was commended for. God came to Noah. David talked about him last week, and God told Noah, said, Noah, I'm going to destroy this earth by a flood. But here's my promise to you. I want to save you. I want to save your family. I want to save the animal kingdom. I want you to build an ark and get above it, aboard it, and you're going to be saved. That was the promise, and Noah trusted that. He came to Moses at a burning bush who was a fugitive in a foreign country, and he said, Moses, get up, get your staff, and go back down to Egypt. I want you to confront the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and our enslaved people are going to be set free through you. And after a good bit of cajoling, Moses obeyed that promise. The best example, though, I think in Hebrews 11 is Abraham. And, and David's going to get to that next week or the week after, so I'm not going to steal his thunder. But if you just look, look at Hebrews 11, the time that Abraham and his wife Sarah, how God attaches them to the promises made to them. It says, by faith, Abraham, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. God told him, pack up and move, Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. I know you got no kids, but I'm still going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, but we're not doing it here. I promise you that, but we're going to have to go to a place I'll show you. That was the promise. Abraham got up and went. He promised him his children would come through Sarah. But she was 65 when she got that promise, and Abraham was 75 it would be 25 more years before that boy came. But look at what it says. Because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And then even Hebrews 11 verse uh, 17. In an almost unthinkable situation, God calls upon Abraham to sacrifice that boy Isaac when he's a young man. And Abraham couldn't figure that one out. But what he did know, he said, he who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. I'll say it again. Faith is trusting God's promises. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, actually plenty. Do you know how many promises there are in the Bible? Back in 1956, there was a Canadian school teacher by the name of Everett Storm, and he was reading the Bible through for the 27th time. He made that a lifestyle habit. And he decided that year as he went through the Bible that he wanted to list every promise in God's Word. And so he did. It took him a year and a half. And by the way, he wrote a book. You can still get that book online. 
Everett Storm, and I'm going to trust him. I've not double-checked his math, okay? I'm, I'll just go ahead and give that disclaimer. He found out there were 8,810 promises in the Bible. Now, that's all promises, some human to human, some human to God, some an angel to a human, so forth. But, but he said out of those 8,810, 7,478 were promises that God made to man, that God made to humanity. That's a bunch. Now, sometimes that promise was a very specific promise to a certain human in a certain situation at a certain time in history. It was that way with Noah. The promise to build an ark is not one that's made to you and me. It was that way with Moses. Moses had to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt, not you and me. Uh, it was that way with Abraham. It was through his seed, not mine, that there was going to be specific promises to a specific situation. But now get this, because this is the important part for us. Hundreds and hundreds of those promises, more than half of the 7,478 are clearly universal promises. In other words, they're promises made for all humanity at all time. And the fact is, they've been preserved for us in this book so that we can live by faith. That's what the book's for. Here's a question. Somebody says, going from preaching to meddling, but I'm asking myself the same question, okay? How many of those promises are you claiming in your life on a regular basis right now? You know, maybe for some of us, the better question is, even, how many of those promises can you even name? It's kind of tough putting your faith in the promises of God when we're not all that aware of them. I, I want to give you a challenge today, and I'm going to take it myself. The reason I'm giving it to you is because I prayed about it for the last two weeks, so I'm going to do this. Uh, Fifty weeks from today is January the 1st, 2023. Forty-nine more weeks left in this year, and 50 weeks from today, we start out the first week of 2023. Here's the challenge I'd like to give you. I would like for you each week to choose one of those promises of God, universal promise, not a promise just made to know about an ark, I, I, something that's clearly universal, it's applicable to you, it's applicable to me. I want you to write that promise down for that week. And every day that week, I'm not saying you have to spend a ton of time on it, depends on how much you want to spend on it, but you look at that promise you meditate on it. That just means ponder it a little bit. How can God use this promise in my life? And then I'm going to ask you to pray over it and then boldly claim it. I will promise you, and I'm not God, so my promise doesn't carry his weight, but if you'll do that for one year, you will start your life on an adventure of faith the likes of which you have never experienced before. Principle number one, faith is trusting God's promises. But let's look at principle number two. Faith requires an obedient response. You know, some folks have this erroneous notion, oh, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and that's faith. No, no, it's not. It's not faith. Uh, it, it may be an intellectual acknowledgement. It might even be a very firmly held belief 
But it's not faith. Faith is more than that. Faith is stepping out and putting your weight on our almighty God. Again, you look at all of Hebrews 11, that's what those ancients were commended for. When they trusted God's promise, it meant doing something God specifically asked them to do. I said a moment ago, God came to know us, and I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to destroy the earth by water, but I'm going to save you and your family on an ark. But here's what you got to do, No, you got to build that ark. And it may have taken up to 100 years of his life to do it. When he came to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I'm going to use you to free all of our people, but you're going to have to go down there and stare Pharaoh eyeball to eyeball, knowing well, if I'm not with you, he will snuff you like a bug. To Joshua, we haven't talked about him yet. He's in Hebrews 11. Joshua and the children of Israel, after 40 years of wilderness wandering, they finally cross Jordan and go into the promised land. Yay! But guess what? First thing in front of them is the most fortified city in the ancient world. It's Jericho. It's impregnable. And they're just a bunch of slaves who are tattered and hungry who've been wandering for 40 years. They have no battle skills. And God said, here's the game plan. March around that city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, you march around it seven times, and then everybody give a shout and see what happens to that wall. That's not exactly the battle plan I would have devised. God said, that's what I want you to do. That's what I want you to do. See, here's what I want you to understand. I mentioned 7,487 promises in the Bible. From God to man, basically they're kind of Two types of God's promises. One are unconditional promises. God makes several promises. They're unconditional. They're just going to happen. David referenced one last week talking about Noah. After the flood, God made a covenant in Genesis 9 to Noah. He said, I'll never destroy the earth again by water. Not going to happen. And folks, you can book that. It's not going to happen. Now, by the way, here's the thing about an unconditional promise. You can believe it. You can not believe it. You can like it, you can hate it. It's going to happen. Now, you may be much worse off for not believing it, but it's just going to happen. Here's another one in Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascended to heaven. His disciples saw him, and they were aghast. And two men robed in white, they they were angels, looked and said, why do you stare into heaven? The same Jesus is going to come back the very way you've seen him leave. And that is the first of over 50 unconditional promises in Scripture that Jesus Christ is coming again. And you can book that too. I don't know when. A lot of people believe that, but a lot more people don't. But you know what? In the grand scheme of things, that that doesn't change anything. It's an unconditional promise. But now here's where the adventure of faith really has its genesis. It is with the conditional promises of God. And when I say a conditional promise, well, it's named. There is a condition that needs to be met to trigger the reward of the promise. Got it? There's a premise to the promise. It's an if-then statement. You had those in, in logic class. And, you know, if such and such, then such and such. And these are promises that require an obedient response in order to claim the reward God promises. 
There are hundreds of these in Scripture. I'll just put a few on the screen. How about this one from Psalm 37, 4? David said, take delight in the Lord. That's the premise. That's the condition. You take delight in the Lord, then what's the promise? And he will give you the desires of your heart. I find a lot of people on earth, they want to get the desires of their heart. They just don't want to take delight in the Lord. They just want their selfish desire. Well, good luck getting that promise fulfilled. Faith means, if I will take delight, it means the premise and then the promise. Uh, Here's another one. How about John 8, 31 and 32? Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. You want to be a disciple? It's not just something you call yourself. Here's the condition. You hold to his teaching. That's the condition. Hold to his teaching, then you really are. Oh, by the way, there's some other benefits. that, And if you hold to his teachings, you'll know the truth. And if you hold to his teachings, that truth will set you free. It's a, it's a threefold promise. It's a wonderful one, by the way. Let's go to another one. How about 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise every one of us needs regularly. Amen? All right, amen for me. I need it. But by the way, what's the condition? If we confess our sins. We do that. If you're a Christian, confess your sins. And what's the promise? He's going to be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. By the way, this is one that so many, we don't want to, we don't want to obey it. What do I want to do with my sin? I want to hide it. I want to deny it. I want to blame somebody for it. I want to do a million other things. Sometimes in the flesh, the hardest thing for me is to confess it. But it's like lancing a boil. It frees me from the power that sin has. All right. Those are examples of conditional promises. Now, I ask you to take the challenge with me a minute ago of 50 promises over the next 50 weeks. Two little, two little other potential requests on that. One is, look for those conditional promises. The ones where you have to put your faith on something in God. As you ponder and pray over them, look for conditional promises. And then number two, I'm going to ask for the next month and a half out of this year-long adventure. I would like to ask that you focus on some conditional promises that can impact your faith adventure with the New Day Vision Giving Campaign. Again, there's scores and scores of them. I, I, I've got maybe three or four here. How about this one? David covers this almost every Sunday, the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Somebody said, well, that, that's a command. It's not really a promise. Well, it's actually both. Because what I just read to you is the condition. It's the premise. If you go make disciples of all nations, if you teach them what I've commanded you, look at the last sentence. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I don't know about you, but that's important. Because I'll tell you, disciple making isn't easy. Anybody, anybody here ever said it's easy? You know why it's not easy? Because it, it goes against our natural inclination to leave well enough alone. To not bother people. Don't ruffle any feathers. 
They believe what they believe. I believe what I believe. Okay, so wrong, so wrong. You know, let's go. Disciple making is never, it's a challenge personally, one-on-one. It's a challenge collectively to muster the resources and to do what needs to be done to give everybody a chance to say yes to King Jesus. But the promise is you're not going to do it alone. Jesus will be with you always to the very end of the age, blessing what you're doing. Oh, here's another one, and this is landmark right here. Near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his listeners, and just prior to this verse, he's telling them, why do you worry about what you eat and drink and wear and this, that, and the other? The pagans worry about those. And then here's his conditional promise, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and you do that, all these things will be added to you as well. All the things you need, not just to survive, all the things you need to thrive in life. Now, this business of seeking first the kingdom of God, I, I think there's a, a dual meaning there. Collectively, we're doing that with this camp. We're trying to seek the kingdom of God here, near and far. Expand to the fastest growing part of America, really, over on the west side of this campus. Plant more domestic churches in a country that's getting increasingly pagan and take the 500 uh, church plants in the global south and multi multiply those exponentially. That's seeking the kingdom of God. That's, that's obeying the premise. But when I personally choose to give generously to make all that happening, I'm seeking the kingdom of God in my own heart. I'm seeking because I'm putting my faith on God that you're going to take care of me. That leads to one more I'll do, and I'll stop for lack of time. This one I covered two years ago when I had the opportunity to preach before we couldn't finish our campaign. Jesus made the promise, give and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over in your lap. That promise is just this, you cannot outgive God. I don't mean this as a health and wealth prosperity gospel like, you know, you, you know, the TV preacher, you send in 100, I promise you'll have 1,000 by the end of the month. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way, but he does promise this. You give to me, and by the way, not just money, you give your time. You give your time, God, and you say, well, I don't have enough time. Well, you give God the time you got, and I promise you, he will multiply it in ways that can't be explained. You got talents. Give God your talent. Volunteer for a ministry. And I can't explain it, but he will multiply that talent and make it more amazing than it was before you gave it to him. Give him your money, and he will take that, he will use it, and you will be blessed beyond what you can envision. Those are promises of God but they demand an obedient response. I'm going to move on to number three. Principle number three, faith is the connection to God's power. You know, the individuals highlighted in Hebrews 11, we've talked about this. They weren't ancient superheroes. They were ordinary people who God used in extraordinary ways. Not because they were powerful but because their faith connected them to God's super extraordinary power. In fact, I'm going to show you an analogy here. You see those giant cables, those high voltage wires going from that power plant? Now, I'm not a, an electrician, but I can use the internet. 
and according to the internet, the average voltage in one of those big thick, they can be five, six inches in diameter, the average voltage that they carry is about 345,000 volts. That's a lot of electricity. And those giant cables, they branch out into hundreds of others, and they branch out into thousands of others, and eventually they make their way and get connected to my house and your house, and the wiring in our houses takes it to little outlets, and guess what we do? We plug in these kind of things. And I get a whole 110 volts of electricity to recharge my iPad. But now here's my point. Oh, there it is. <laughs> God is the power plant. I mean, He is the power plant. He is the source of all power. No power exists except by God. Now, how much of that am I going to get? Well, it depends upon what I'm going to plug in with. Am I going to plug in with that kind of cable string? By the way, the, the amount of electricity in those high voltage is over 3,000 times what you get here. And what I'm really trying to say is that that Jesus says, you can really have as much of God as you want. How much faith are you willing to connect to his power? What enabled Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham to be used by God and do incredible things was not their unusual ability. It was their unusual amount of faith. One of the things I see in my Gospels, looking at the life of Jesus, Jesus was always... He was allowing, and this was his choice, how much of his power he would give to other people, and it was always based on their faith. He said to two blind men who were begging for mercy, he said, according to your faith, it will be given to you. He said, yeah, you're going to connect to my power. And by the way, they had enough that he healed them. Uh, in Matthew 13 here, he was in Nazareth, his hometown. You know how that goes. Prophets not without honor, except in his own. You know, they looked at him and said, hey, we knew this guy growing up. We don't know who does he think he is, you know. And so look at what he says, the last verse of the chapter. He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. I mean, they weren't even plugging in with this. I mean, they weren't plugging in at all. He said, that's fine. You can have as much of God as you want. In Matthew 17, we won't read it right now, but the disciples, his closest disciples, tried to cast a demon out of a boy, and they couldn't do it. And, and they came back and said, Master, what can we do? And he said, you just didn't have enough faith. And he said, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell a mountain to move from here to there. Now, conversely, let me show you a couple examples. There was that poor woman who had the hemorrhaging issue who came to Jesus crawling through the crowd. She touched his garment. And he turned around. He knew what had happened. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, was it her faith? No, that wasn't the power. The power was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The faith was the connector. And she plugged in with something a lot bigger than this. She plugged in high voltage. Here was another example. The Roman centurion of all people, a Gentile, a pagan, but he had heard of Jesus, and he believed, and he trusted that Jesus would heal his sick child. And he got word the child was dead, and, you know, he looked here, and he said, he said Master, you can say the word. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a general. I'm a centurion. I, I, I command, but you just say the word, and it can be done. 
And Jesus said, I didn't click it over yet, did I? He said when he heard this, he was amazed at him. And he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. I want to repeat it again. Here's the good news. You can have as much of God as you want. You really can. And faith, while it's like a cable, it's also like a a muscle. You don't go from 110 to 345,000 volts in a day. You know how you get bigger muscles? You exercise them. You use them. You nourish them. If you do this adventure of faith for the next 50 weeks, I'm going to say again what I said back a few moments ago, and you really claim the powers of God, you watch your cable grow. And it will be amazing. You want the power to be a better person? God can give you the power to be the person you want to be. You want the power for a joy-filled life? God wants to give you that so bad, that's the fruit of the Spirit. If we'll live by faith and seize His promises, do you want the power to overcome adversity? I don't care what that adversity is. Now, I'm not saying you won't have adversity. We're all going to have adversity. You want the power to overcome that? You plug in with faith into the promises of God. You want to literally bless thousands, even hundred thousands of lives and plug into the source of God with cable-sized faith. I want to go on to number four before our time gets away. The greatest challenge to faith is fear. I will tell you this, you watch it in my life, watch it in your life. The more faith you have, the less fear. They're in inverse proportions. You find a life that's afraid at any given moment in time and their faith has ebbed. You find a life that's living strongly by faith and they're not afraid. Faith and fear are an inverse. That's why 365 times in the Bible, God, Jesus, or an angel came to a person and said, don't be afraid. I'll show you a couple more examples of this in the Gospels. In Matthew 8, verse 26, the disciples were on a boat and a storm came up. And Jesus was asleep. And when he woke up, and look, look, see the connection? You of little faith, why are you so afraid? They got afraid. And the faith went down. Matthew chapter 14. Ah, here we go. May have to have someone change it for me. Sorry about that. All right. Well, now, now I'm, I knew that was going to happen. I'm sorry about that. Well, Matthew chapter 14, Peter was walking to Jesus on the water and Jesus saw him and suddenly Peter, who had his eyes fixed on Jesus and was full of faith, but all of a sudden he noticed, oh my goodness, I'm on 500 feet of water and the wind's blowing, it's raining, it's up. And so he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried saying, Lord, save me. Now, I don't want to sound, I don't even know what to call it, bizarre here. Everybody gets afraid. Everybody gets afraid. I've never known a life that didn't have fear. I go through Hebrews 11. Abraham was afraid when he and his wife were wandering through Abimelech's kingdom, and Abimelech had his eye on Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Abraham got scared he might die because he said, well, you know, she's my sister. He'd let her have her. Jacob was afraid when he deceived his father Esau and ran. And then he was afraid of his brother brother Esau, thinking he was going to kill him. 
Moses was afraid at the burning bush. He said, God, I can't go. I'm slow of speech. Who am I? I just I, send somebody else. He was afraid. David was terrified when he learned that Bathsheba was pregnant with his child. All of them were afraid at some point in time. But you know what they came to realize? They realized that fear is based on the deceptive lies of Satan. And faith is based on the promises of God. And each of them ultimately decided, I'm going to live my life on faith and not fear. Now, I want to say something here as I'm wrapping this up. I hope that in the New Day campaign, I hope you and your family take these two principles that we've just been talking about. That faith is the connection to God's power. And the greatest challenge to faith is fear. And I hope you'll make a commitment to this campaign based on faith and not fear. I'll tell you a little personal story right quick. 27 years ago, I was the, the preacher at the Madison Church of Christ. I was in my mid-30s. And we had a giving campaign. It's funny, it was trying to raise $4 million. That was our ultimate challenge goal over a three-year period. Keep in mind, that was 27 years ago. Um, to tell you how long ago it was, the theme was Vision 2000. How dated does that sound, okay? You know, Madison was a large church, but it didn't really have any wealthy members. A lot of hardworking blue-collar folks, people who were filled with faith, and people that had generous hearts. We brought in a fundraising consultant, and we didn't know what to do. Fundraising consultant did their little focus groups and interviews, and they came back and said, well, you know, here to tell you the truth, you're going to be able to raise between 2.5 and 2.7 million. That's what you can raise. Said, uh, that's just about, you know, you, you just don't have a lot of deep pockets here. One of the axioms they told us, by the way, was you, you, you never raise more than 10 times your largest gift. That's a fundraising axiom. It's true most of the time. And they said, you can do 2.5, 2.7. At the end of the campaign, we raised $4.7 million. And I will tell you, it's the only campaign I've ever been associated with that the, the total amount raised was 23 times the largest gift. Not some big benefactor. Just a lot of people who gave by faith. But here's the part I really want to share with you because it's personal and I'm a, if you'll allow me to tell you this story real quickly, but here I was preaching about it every Sunday, but, you know, came time for me and Patsy to make our commitment. Push comes to shove now. So I remember sitting down with her at the kitchen table and saying, you know, well, what do you think we should give? And she said, I don't know, what are you thinking? And my first instinct was to make a gift motivated by fear. I know I'm the preacher over here preaching about how we ought to be generous, but my first instinct was to make a gift motivated by fear. And what do I mean by that? Well, it was like this. I say, well, here's how much we make, and, you know, here's how much we've got in savings. It wasn't a whole lot back then. I had three young kids. Two were in Christian schools and one about to start. And I, and I sat there and looked at all our commitments, our house payment, our car payment, our, our other 
payments that had to be paid over time. And then he began to think about all the things that we might need money for. You know, we had one in braces, and I thought the next one's going to have to get those braces next year. And, and I bet the Christian school tuition will go up 5%. And, you know, Lee's growing like a weed. He's out of all his clothes. We're going to have about a lot more clothes. And I need a new set of tires, and your car will next year. And, and you know, that water heater's been as old as the house. It could go out any day. I mean, just afraid of all the things it could be. And so we figured all that into the contingency and came up with a figure. And I had my gift motivated by fear. But then we looked at each other, and I'll tell you what we did. We committed to pray. To pray to God for about a month that he give us the faith, the wisdom, and the enthusiasm to make a faith gift. I mean, to really step out on that promise to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and see if all those things wouldn't be added to us. To really believe that if we give, it'll be given back, good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over in our lap. And we prayed for that month and then we sat down again. And the conversation was much, much different. It wasn't less, well, let's come up with a figure that we feel pretty safe about because of all the things that could go wrong. We looked for hidden opportunities. We said, you know, if we're going to sacrifice something for God, why don't we see what expenses we can decrease? We decided we could put off buying that new car for two more years. We would have bought it with credit anyway, so that was two, two years of car payments that we could put toward the campaign. We decided that we would eat out less. We agreed to do that. We decided that we could decrease our clothing budget. We had enough clothes. We might just want some new ones, but we had plenty of clothes. We also decided for the next three years we could take cheaper vacations. And then we flipped over on the other side and said, that's how you could decrease expenses. Can we increase income in ways that God would bless? You know, one of the things we said is, well, I'd had one little piece of rental property I bought shortly after property, had a note on it, said, you know, rather than saving that for a rainy day, let's take all the net income after expenses on that, and for the next three years, let's give it to God. See what he'll do with it. And I had these old comic books I'd had since I was eight years old. Guys, I, you won't believe it. I mean, I had like the third Spider-Man comic book. I had the fourth Avengers. I wish I'd have kept them in a whole lot better shape, but they... They were still worth something, you know, and I hadn't read them in four or five months, I guess. So, you know, I, I thought, here I am, 37, 38 years old. I get about $1,000 for those comic books. They're just wasting away in the attic. And I can give the revenue that I'm getting from my speaking engagements that I'm doing occasionally. And, and you know what? If I get a raise, I didn't know if I would, but I thought if I get a raise, cost of living, I can give that increase because we can make do on for another year or two without that raise. And guess what? After praying about it and taking it that way, we increased our fear-based gift tenfold. And that's what we committed. And I'll tell you something else. God blessed us enough that we were able to increase that midway through the campaign and give more than we'd ever pledged. And by the way, he made sure that second child got his braces too the next year. Didn't miss a beat. You know, looking back, all I'm going to tell you is this, and I'm not, I, everybody's experience is different. I didn't know where it would all come from. 
But when we took the time to pray about it and look by faith and claim promises, I think God showed us some streams. And we just had to trust. Some of those streams might dry up. They might. But then there's another stream I hadn't thought of. And we got to trust those streams are going to flow into a river. And to believe in him enough to ride the rapids down the river. That's the adventure of faith. It's the adventure of faith. And I'll tell you, you've never had faith in God until you've attempted something that cannot be done by your own power. That's the adventure of faith. And then principle number five as we close. God will do amazing things through great faith. I go back to Hebrews 11. Did some pretty amazing. Hey, he saved humanity through Noah's faith. That's pretty big. He created three great nations. Christianity, Judaism, Islam from Abraham's faith. Him keeping the promise. Through Moses, he kept God's people together and not scattered to the wind like the Midianites and and the Amorites and the Amalekites. We don't know who they are anymore. But he kept the Hebrews together so that our Savior could be born and we could all be saved. And I'll tell you, it's not in Hebrews 11, but I believe this. I do believe, I believe there are going to be enough people who are going to trust in faith to God's promises that North Boulevard could be added to that list. I can't wait till we all get to heaven because I think it's going to take that. I don't think, I don't think even if, you, if you're young and live a long time, we'll ever know how many people are going to be reached through the gospel, through the effort that we're going to collectively be a part of in a couple of months. It's an adventure of faith. I invite you to take it with me and with, with all of us. I'm looking out on the faces of so many godly, faithful people. But I say again, I'm excited about the outcomes of the campaign. I'm just as even more excited about what it can do in each and every one of our lives. Let's stand and sing this song together as we reflect upon God's promises and trusting those.